five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. Hi, I'm Mark Boucher, and this is the Space Cube Podcast. My guest today is Chris Carberry, the CEO of Explore Mars, a not-for-profit that engages stakeholders in an effort to make Humans to Mars a reality. The organization holds an annual Humans to Mars Summit in Washington every May. Today, Chris will get us caught up in what the organization is doing, the status of a future human mission to Mars, and we'll talk about the exciting year 2020 will be for Mars with four missions launching to the Red Planet this summer. Listen in. It's hard to believe that it's already been two years since you were last on this podcast. That's a lot of ground to cover in a podcast, but we'll do our best. Let's (laughs) chat about some of the initiatives your organization does. You hold an annual conference called the Humans to Mars Conference. You publish an annual Humans to Mars report. And you also organize the achievability and sustainability of human exploration of Mars workshops. So let's start with what are the dates for the Humans to Mars Conference this year? And how has the conference evolved over the years? Well, Humans to Mars Summit is uh, on May 12th through 14th at the National Academy of Sciences building in Washington, D.C., and it, is, it has turned into the largest annual conference in the world focused on getting humans to Mars. And that's not just the people that come to the uh, conference live, which generally is around six or 700 typically. But we've been running over 100,000 watching online, which is not too bad, you know, for our space exploration conferences you know, pretty, pretty solid numbers, people watching and um, sharing information via social media. So this year, you know, it has developed over time. Actually, a very a, um, next month is an important month for us because February will be will mark our 10th anniversary of Explore Mars coming into existence. We were found in February 2010. So a lot's happened in the last 10 years. And I think our group has played a fairly significant role in how things have developed over that time frame within space policy. But with the Humans to Mars Summit, we started that conference in 2013, and it really has grown up. The first one, as with any first conference, it wasn't perfect, but it did set a tone and started a process. And each year, I think we have made it better, improved it, and now I believe it's one of the most respected, certainly for Mars, one of the most respected conferences in the space community. Now, oh, go ahead. Now, why do you think that is? Is that because of who you get there, or is it because you're in Washington? Uh, the, you know, if you want to get things done politically, you're in the right place. I think it's a combination. You know, I think you know being in Washington certainly helps. You know, it's easier to get the high-ranking NASA officials and other people, policy people as well. So that certainly helps. But I think the way our philosophy for running our organization and our philosophy for running conferences is different than anybody else. I think we, unlike you know a lot of other groups, and they other groups do a lot of great work, but a lot of other advocacy groups almost seem as though they are screaming from the outside inward, trying to influence from the outside. 
we've done a good job at working from the inside, working with stakeholders in industry, at NASA, and internationally, working with them and trying to build consensus, trying to grow the community as well, not just for Mars, but within the space community as well. And think, I think we've done a very successful job, not necessarily trying for a grand slam for ba using baseball terms. You know, every time we're trying to achieve some policy uh, motion or achieve something, but we try we pick, figure out where we're at, what's an attainable goal to really move the ball forward and see if we can get the whole community to come with us. So sometimes it is fairly slow, but I think we've made some pretty good progress over the last 10 years, just trying to work within the group, bring, you know, build consensus and hopefully move them forward. So it may be not necessarily making the same progress or having, you know, achieving everything that we would really want each time. We do make compromises to try to build, expand our community. But I think we have brought the community forward. And uh, while there have been a lot of factors over the last 10 years, I certainly, you know, from other, you know, like, like the 20, Curiosity Landing, other things, you know, other groups. But I think we've certainly impacted the goal of getting humans to Mars during that time frame. Now, um, what percentage of the people who actually go to the conference are from outside the U.S.? And is that growing or is it stable? It's it's a fairly small percentage, but it is growing. You know, when we first started the conference in 2013, it was it was pretty much... You know, well, there are some international players. It was pretty much an American exclusive sort of conference. And actually, that made sense at the time, because even even though Mars was officially U.S. policy at the time, there really wasn't a lot of consensus and agreement that Mars was the goal, even back in 2013. But over time, over the next few years, you know, through that conference and through our workshops, the Mars Achievability Workshops, you know, where we bring stakeholders together and try to build, agree on sustainable missions for moving forward, I think we have been able to, um, you know, use that and make motion, make, create that motion forward. So I think a lot of these factors, the conference, the, the workshops that we run, as I mentioned, those have been very effective and those are small. We bring probably 60 or 70 people from the you know from industry nasa policy international and just try to get you know agreement each year on a new set of goals and it's kind of funny because every time we do it uh the agreements that we determine at these workshops slowly filter back to industry and nasa and soon it just seems as though it's become as part of policy and everybody says oh it's always been like that except if you look back, no, it hasn't. And that's part of the subtle reason why we've been successful, because we do we do act a little more subtly than a lot of other groups. All right. I, you mentioned a couple of things in there that I want to flesh out a little bit. Um, uh, with the conference itself, a very important point that I think that uh, that you mentioned is that aside from the fact that, you know, six to seven hundred people coming to the conference itself, um, you said about a hundred thousand uh, people are tuning in to the, the videos over uh, the course of the conference, or is that all time? Over the course of the conference. Over Although the course of the conference. Um, we averaged probably on our main webcast 
think we had about 45,000 live views, but then we also had Reuters and NASA television, which pushed us over 100,000. So, uh, but I think we averaged probably 15 or 20, the ones that I can identify each day, I think we averaged around 15K on our main webcast. And then those other services didn't do the whole conference, but did certain sections of the conference. I think but, those I think those numbers are significant, and uh, because I mean I tune into a lot of events, and you know I don't see those types of live numbers for a lot of events. So you're you're obviously tapping into uh, an audience that that's really interested in this. Is that audience primarily in the states, or or is there a, a, a global component to it? all over the place. It's actually interesting. I haven't actually, and I have to look this up, I haven't looked at the distribution this year, but I have in previous years, and it's remarkable how much international viewership there is. So, you know, just it's quite significant. So I don't have those numbers, but based on every previous year, it is, it's significant and, you know, all over the place, all over the world and in places you wouldn't even think would be necessarily watching a space conference. So now let's talk about the other thing that you, you, you mentioned, which is engagement. Um, obviously, you're engaging people through uh, your annual conference. Um, you published the report and you talked about the, uh, the workshops. So throughout the year, is, is, aside from the, the summit, um, is the workshops your primary means of engaging with people or do you do other things as well? Well, we do other things. The workshop's part of it. And, you know, the workshop is just one part of the process. Then we continue moving. We have teams putting together the final report. But then that final report, we distribute to members of Congress, the stakeholders, and we do briefings and um, meetings throughout the year based on that, based on our other report, the Humans to Mars report, to try to just make sure we can speak to as many people as possible, make sure they understand what the current thinking is and what possible in space exploration, specifically towards Mars, and just keep everybody engaged. But we do other things as well. And we're going, we're particularly, um, now that we, in the last year, we brought in a new president, Janet Ivey. Many people know her from her television show, Janet's Planet. And so we'll be, we've always done STEM education, but we'll be dramatically increasing our STEM education activities over the next several months. So that's another area. And with her, you know, with her um, network of Students, schools, others, we're already reaching a lot more people because when she goes out and talks as part of Janet's Planet, she's often speaking to 1,500 to 2,000 students at a time. So she has a rather large network and she's always speaking to huge numbers of kids. So we will be expanding our STEM education activities uh, over the next year. But I can't go into details. We'll also be announcing the probability of partnering with a major tech company to do a student CubeSat uh, project as well. So that'll be our first um, project getting something into space. And would that CubeSat go to Mars or are you just talking about low Earth orbit? This, this, this would be just to orbit, uh, low Earth orbit at the moment, but we've been talking about a lot of different options and where we can go. You know, this is something we could do annually and what we could do moving forward, what, what the options would be. So I would certainly hope over time, if we can get this moving and build up momentum it would be great to be able to send a CubeSat to Mars one day. Now, you're a not-for-profit. Um, how are you funded, and um, uh, how many people do, do you actually uh, employ these days? Well, we are, yeah, we're a non-profit. We're largely funded, and we're not, we're not a 
membership organization either. So, so we're a little bit, we offer our funding stream is a little bit different than a lot of other groups because they, so much of their income is based on membership. We don't have membership, so we don't have any money from membership, clearly. And so a large portion of our money comes from corporate sponsorships with the conferences and workshops. We get some grants. We get individual donations, but because we're not a membership group, the individual donations are actually the smallest part. It's um, grants and sponsorships is the largest chunk of our income, you know. And then after that comes individual donations. But we're also trying to work on that as well to find ways to uh, make it more attractive to donate from individuals, even though we're not a membership organization. What was the other part of your question? <laughs> Oh, I'm just wondering how many people are actually working for the organization now. You're full-time. Is there anybody else? Yeah, we have two full-time staff members, and then we have a part-time, and we also have somebody we're contracting as well. So right. um, so two full-time full -time staff and then a couple others that are being you know paid part-time. All right. So before we move on to a little bit more Mars talk, let's change change things, uh, the tact a bit. Um there's a lot of talk in Washington and elsewhere about going back to the moon with humans by 2024. Is that taking some of the wind out of your organization's objectives and the interest in, in your summit? No, not necessarily. Actually, last year, there was a little bit, everybody was up in the air where this was going to go. But I think everything is focused, focused nicely. And going back to the moon could very well be pro problematic to going to Mars if we don't do it correctly. But one of the things we've been doing, and this is one of the things we've been doing in our workshops and at the Humans to Mars Summit in over the last year, is engaging the lunar community and trying to work with the, within these both of these communities to figure out, you know, if we're going to go back to moon, the moon, to the surface of the moon, how can we do it in a way that will not be a hindrance to going to Mars? Can we use, can we design mission architectures for the moon that'll feed forward to Mars? Because if we don't do that, yeah, it's not a good thing for Mars. If we don't, if we do it in the wrong way, if it becomes a moon only project, then, you know, Mars will be pushed off by decades. So we certainly don't want that to happen. So, but however, if we approach it in the proper way and really think about Mars as we're planning to go to the moon, I, I think it can be beneficial. It's still going to be challenging. It could still delay Mars. But, you know, we've been very happy, actually, with the enthusiasm the lunar communities had when they were working with them, trying to figure this out. And so I'm hoping that not only will we, we be able to push that message forward, but when NASA and industry and international players are, you know, putting, you know, really putting these designs together, this is really kept... Mars is kept in mind so we don't delay it because we do really want to get to Mars. It is still possible to get to Mars by the 2030s, but it's still every year that we're not planning, we're not making decisions, it gets more and more challenging. So, but I think the fact that a timeline, even if we can get back to the moon by 2024, we'll see. It'd be great if we could. But the fact that we've sped up the timeline, I, timeline, I think is a good thing. When we were talking about, you know, when people were talking about, well, we could go back to the moon back by the end of the 2020s and then Mars sometime after that. Well, that was not particularly um, inspiring. So we, we weren't we weren't uh, supportive of that. But if we're really going to invest and in, speed up the timeline, 
I think that could be beneficial to Mars. But once again, it remains to be seen how all these pieces are going to fall into place over the next few years. Right. So there's always a lot of variables uh, in this. Uh, and within those variables, there are some wild cards. And uh, I use the word wild card specifically because I'm, I'm talking about SpaceX. Um, is SpaceX... Uh, going to to push the timeline are they do they have enough wherewithal to actually have an influence as to when a mission might happen they might it's hard to say because once again they they have some wonderful momentum they've done some extraordinary things however they're also doing it on their own and that's at least with regards to mars they work with nasa of course on crew vehicles and cargo etc but since they have their own unique mission design plans for Mars, which are separate than the plans that NASA and the other partners are working on, it's gonna it's kind of always been interesting to see how this will happen. Because if they I've always found it hard to believe that if they don't get any NASA funding for this mission, they're gonna be able to achieve this goal. But you know, if they're able to find public funding or private funding rather, uh, maybe, but Problem is, it's not likely people say, well, if we let NASA, SpaceX do it, you know, you know, they'd probably be NASA. But I, sorry, sorry, I kind of lost my train of thought here. I just find it, I don't think it's likely that Congress would fund a single company to do something, even if they came up with the most brilliant plan. And so the question would be, can they do it privately or the hardware they're developing, could they, um, can it be integrated into a broader plan? And this is where there are a lot of questions, but they're certainly making a lot of momentum forward. We'll see where all their new mission architecture plans go. So I'm, I'm really interested to see. I'll just throw in that from, from my perspective, um, uh, I think that uh, if SpaceX wanted to do it on its own, it could but not for the first mission. I just I just don't see see that happening myself. I think that SpaceX might be able to push the timeline, but as we've seen with everything with SpaceX, um, you know, there are variables at play within what they're trying to achieve, including now using the Starlink uh, uh, program to generate uh, more revenue, uh, which I'm sure they're going to use to develop... Uh, uh, rockets and other things for um, uh, for future Mars missions, but I, I don't think any single company can do it at, on their own at this point. But that's just my opinion. Well, well and I, I generally agree with that. And frankly, I don't actually think we should because that's been one of yeah, my that's the other thing. <laughs> I've always been a big fan of SpaceX, but it's I think it's bad policy to invest everything in one company because it's. Yeah, it's one company, and in some ways, you're investing in one person. While there are a lot of passionate people at SpaceX, if something were to happen to Elon, how would that change the corporate culture? Would things start be looking more like a normal company? It's hard to say. So you need you need more people, you need more players to move the uh, move the momentum forward. And I, so, I, I think there's a few more mavericks at, at SpaceX that people don't know about. But anyway, that's well, that's a different well, conversation. <laughs> it is, and I know I know a lot of them. But it's still you still you can't really. Um, it's hard to say what would happen though, and so I'm sure they would still be ambitious and move forward. But you never know how things would happen within a court, you know, within normal normal corporate structures. You know, where they become a little less 
uh, risk, um, well, able to embrace risk, who knows? But once again, that's speculation. Hopefully that never happens, you know, <laughs> meaning, but um, regardless, it's, you know, it should be interesting. I think they add a wonderful, you know, add something wonderful to the mix as to other companies like Blue Origin and so many other companies working on interesting problems right now. So I'm just hoping we'll be able to utilize them all, not just the rocket companies, but there's so many other companies out there working on technologies that are highly relevant to Mars exploration, you know, whether it be in areas of agriculture or areas of um, artificial intelligence, yeah, other areas, lots of these technology firms that are working on, um, well, technologies that could have a direct impact on space exploration. Some of them know it, some of them don't. So it's part of what we do, particularly at the Humans to Mars Summit, is trying to bring bring a lot of these players in to talk about how these technologies could benefit missions to Mars or elsewhere. Right. So let's take the focus now back from looking to the future and what might happen to what's actually going to happen right now. So in your 2019 Humans to Mars uh, report, you touched on what you're calling 2020, the year of international Mars science missions. Well, it's 2020, and if Mars fascinates you, then it's going to be an extraordinary year. Oh, yeah. We're very excited about this year with four missions, international missions, and, of course, the biggest, probably the biggest one, you know, we'll see as the others develop, but, um, and, and as China is able to launch theirs as well. But, of course, the United States 2020 rover, which presumably will actually have a name soon. So it's not just the 2020 rover. You know, NASA had a contest. I, I don't actually remember when they're going to announce the name. Do you actually recall that? <laughs> no, I, I don't recall that. But in, in looking at this year, and this is what I want to focus on, I want to get the audience to understand, this is an extraordinary year. We've never had four missions launch. I believe, in the same year uh, to Mars. And so most of them are launching, uh, trying to launch mid-year. So as you mentioned, there's NASA's Mars 20 rover, or 2020 rover. And what's really interesting about the rover is that it also includes the first ever helicopter. Well, that's, yeah, that that's very exciting. Now this, because 2020, and I'll get to the other missions in a second, but uh, the 2020 rover has a number of things that have a direct, could have a direct benefit to getting humans to Mars and uh, maintaining hum- human exploration of Mars. Helicopter being one of them. First time, if it succeeds, well, first time we've ever sent a helicopter to Mars, of course, but and it will, if it succeeds, first time uh, an, an aircraft has been flown on another planetary body of this kind. So, but it has, you know, it'll be really cool to see, of course, you know, whatever images it can get, but the implications are really quite dramatic because essentially it's a drone. And so when we send humans to Mars, they're undoubtedly going to be utilizing drones there, of course, if this works. And so they'll be able to send drones ahead, send them to places the astronauts can't go, down cliff sides into maybe lava tubes, other places. So this is a really exciting test to see, you know, see if this technology can work, if we can u- operate helicopters and maybe other um, aircraft on Mars. That's really important. Of course, the 2020 rover is also bringing the first ISRU experiment, the MOXIE experiment, which will utilize, you know, convert the atmosphere into oxygen. And there are a number of others. Also be searching for the evidence of past life as well. So a lot of different relevant experiments. And of course, it will be also 
um, collecting samples for eventual return to Earth and a future mission for a sample return mission as well. So a lot of things that are highly relevant, well, for science, but highly relevant for sending humans to Mars. You know, oh, I, I remember, um, I remember, oh, it's almost 20 years ago now at the Mars Society conference. Uh, I think it was Larry Lemke, who was part of the Mars Underground, worked at NASA <laughs> Ames, um, who, you know, was pushing for a Mars airplane to to be part of a Mars mission in the future. Basically, drone-type technology is the way we would refer to it now. And I remember in 2005, being at Houghton Crater, a Mars analog in the Canadian high Arctic, uh, seeing JPL test out a... Um, an airplane that was designed to be a drone uh, for exploration on Mars. And, and you add in the human component to this where uh, if you can visualize this, and this is what we were part of the t- research that was ongoing up at Houghton Crater was the drone would scout out ahead of you while you're back in the rover and then you move forward based on what some of the data that you're getting back from the drone. It's actually quite fascinating. And now to actually see this uh, being uh, tested on Mars is, uh, I think, going to be one of the exciting portions of this mission. Oh, I agree. And I I remember that Mars Society talk. (laughs) I remember it well. So, yeah, I think it is. And it's just it should be very exciting. And I think but just from, you know, the implications for sending humans and having drones, but I think it'll be interesting to see just the direct impact this year if it's able to fly and the imagery it's able to send. I think that'll really capture the public's imagination. But, you know, as I mentioned, you know, as we mentioned, there are other missions, you know, international missions, uh, three others. The HOPE mission from the UAE sending their first mission to Mars to coincide with the 50th anniversary of the, you know, the creation of their country. Um, that's going to be an orbiter uh, looking at the Martian atmosphere. The Europeans are sending the second ExoMars mission, this one with a lander, and that'll be actually looking for signs of past and present life. And China's going to be sending a mission, you know, with an orbiter and a lander. And it's also going to be looking for signs of past and present life. So a lot going on. It looks like everybody's, the, the world is focused on Mars right now. And one of the things Explore Mars will be doing this year is obviously utilizing that. We'll be trying to highlight all of these missions, highlight why they're important, why the world is excited about them, and why each of these missions can help um, advance the goal of getting humans to Mars. So this will be a large portion of what we're doing in 2020 and in 2021, because most of these are, I think all of these are launching in around the July timeframe. But it takes obviously multiple months to get to Mars, so they're not going to get there until early 2021. Yeah. So uh, I, what I want to uh, make the audience understand here is is the importance of what's actually happening this year. So you we, we talked about the the NASA Mars 2020 rover and helicopter. China's mission is tentatively at this point uh, called the X the HX one mission, uh, which, like you said, has the orbiter and a rover component. Uh, the Europeans are following up uh, with the ExoMars lander and rover, and I'll add that uh, Russia is a part of that mission, and so is Canada. Uh, and of course, the last one, which is in the, the newest entrant in in this field, is the United Arab Emirates with their orbiter. So, here's some statistics for you. Uh, 
by my count, that's two new orbiters are going to be around Mars this year, three new rovers, a lander, and a helicopter. And they're going to join six operational orbiters right now, which include four American, one European, and one Indian, and with one rover that's still operational on the surface, NASA's Curiosity rover. This is going to be an incredible year if you're, I think, you know, we might be hearing more about Mars later this year into 2021 than we are about the moon, which actually might be a a good thing in some respects, uh, just to get things uh, settled for the moon. But it's, uh, it's going to be an extraordinary, extraordinary year. Now, you've already answered my uh, part of my question on the technology and scientific research side of these missions. But is there anything out of these missions that you hadn't mentioned that that really excites you? You know, I think just, I think the timing, you know, separate, I think I mentioned everything, well, not everything concerning the engineering and the science. There's a lot there, so we could talk for several hours on that. But I think the timing is perfect. And I think it helps helps keep us focused on Mars, as you had alluded to, you know, that this year with so many countries going to Mars, massive with this massive, important mission, I think it really highlights the excitement, why it's important. And, you know, as we're as we're designing mission architecture for sending humans back to the moon, I think this mission helps something that is happening this year and in multiple countries just helps us keep focused on Mars. So I think it could just, just by the impact of it happening, could play a major role in how the mission architecture plans are being developed as we're trying to get back to the moon and making sure that they it doesn't turn into a moon-only pro- program. That Mars is remains a key critical component on that, and with the goal of getting there in the 2030s. All right. I just have two more questions, uh, and uh, this next one is a totally different topic, um, and it concerns you personally. Which is, last year you published a book called "Alcohol in Space: Past, Present, and Future." What prompted you to write this book? <laughs> well, it's kind of funny. It initially started off as a joke, and I probably you've been in some of these discussions after, you know, after various space conferences. You know, when folks go to a bar or something, you know, occasionally we'll talk, start talking about, oh, what would wine taste like if you made it on Mars? Would it taste rusty? Can you brew beer in space? And over years, you know, it, this wasn't like constant, but once in a while, these conversations would come up. And I originally thought it would be great to write an article, somewhat lighthearted, about the prospect of wine on Mars. But the more I looked into it, the more and more I found that this is a real topic. There are actual companies out there, multiple companies and various organizations that have been trying to figure out if they can not only manufacture alcohol in space, but also use the space environment to benefit their product here on Earth. But there are also other groups working on the planet, you know, trying to see if you can grow crops in simulated Mars soil, and some of whom were looking at it for the purpose of beer or wine as well. And the more I looked, I just kept finding dozens of these groups. And of course, there's also an interesting history of astronauts and cosmonauts consuming consuming alcohol in space. Not a lot, but a certain amount of uh, consumption in space. And the more I looked, I realized there was more than enough for a book. So I might as well be the first to write it. So, you know, I went into all these different topics, but also provided some context. Quickly, you know, gave an overview of the history of alcohol and society and how it's impacted civilization. For instance, 
there are many people, many scholars who believe that the um, <clears throat> the desire for alcohol played as big a role, maybe even larger role in the development of agricultural technology than the desire for food. <laughs> and so, and but regardless, you know, it's played such a large role in culture, it's not likely to stop when we go into space. But also went into how much it's been, you know, how it's been portrayed in science fiction and books, television and movies, but also looked at critical technologies like agriculture. So there's a whole chapter on, you know, current thinking, current experiments in space agriculture. But right now, you know, even even since the books come out, two, as far as I know, and there may have been more, but two alcohol experiments have gone up to the International Space Station even since the book was released in October. Uh, I believe it was November, 12 bottles of Bordeaux wine went up for an aging experiment. And then in early December, I think it was, Budweiser sent up its fourth experiment to ISS. They've been sending up barley experiments and you know for the last several years, but they're not even the first. You know, there's still, there's an also currently a, an aging experiment for whiskey on ISS from Suntory, the Japanese whiskey maker. And several years ago, Ardbeg, the Scottish whiskey maker, sent up an, a Scotch or yeah, a Scotch aging experiment. And there are many others here and others being thought of. So I thought this would be a great topic for a book. <laughs> anyway, we've gone off topic a little bit here. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, the focus, of course, is getting humans to Mars uh, safely, uh, and uh, eventually uh, it'd be nice to see an outpost on Mars. Now, my last question, which you, we've already discussed a little bit, but uh, it's important, uh, I think, to, in, the, in the broader picture. Um, I remember when I first got interested in Mars, which was in the mid-90s, uh, and then going to the first Mars Society conference and, and listening to people talk, uh, including some you know, famous NASA astronauts at the time. And, and the consensus was, you know, if we put our mind to it, we can get there in 10 years. Well, it's 20-plus years later, <laughs> and we're not there. And there has been, uh, you know, notional plans to get humans to Mars in the 2030s. Are we still on track for that? Are we going to be pushing that to the 2040s or is the 2030s actually realistic now? I think it's realistic, but we need to get on the ball. And it's kind of funny. I remember the same Mars Society conferences. And you may recall, we created these posters that said Mars by 2020. <laughs> we missed that goal. Although there is a lot of Mars going on this year, that's not what we had in mind. <laughs> so, no. um, but I think we are in a better position. And I sound like Robert Zubrin back in the 90s, but we are, but we really are in a better position now. There's so much different mission architecture currently being developed and almost ready as opposed to back then that if we really commit to it we should be able to get to mars in the 2030s and i think we really but decisions need to be made soon uh, I mean, as i said it's great that we seem to be accelerating and you know there was the goal of getting back to the moon by 2024 and mars by 2033 but when they're talking about mars by 20, 20, 2033 most of the people you talk to the consensus is they mean orbital missions well that's not good enough i think okay maybe we can live with an orbital mission but i think we need to get to the surface and we can't just say we'll go to mars orbit mars in the 2030s i mean by 2033 and sometime after that maybe go to the surface 
we need to make uh, clear decisions soon if we're going to do that. And once again, integrate that into the mission planning in a re regarding the moon as well. So while I think it will be challenging, um, at least from the traditional governmental program perspective, I think it still is possible. But we can't just keep talking about it endlessly or it will, you know, that that window is going to slip away soon if we don't make some hard decisions quickly. All right. We're going to leave it at that. Uh, thank you, Chris, uh, for being my guest today. Uh, the Mars uh, or the Human to Mars Summit is in May. For those who want to uh, go directly to Washington and participate, which I highly recommend. Uh, and if you can't, you can watch it online, including, I believe you will make available a uh, uh, a stream that we can put on Space Q and on uh, Space Ref uh, and, and NASA Watch uh, so that our audience can uh, can tune in. And instead of touching base in two years, well, well, we should try and do a little bit sooner, maybe next year. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a good plan. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Chris. All right. Thank you. Well, that's a wrap on this podcast. If you have comments on this episode, you can email me at podcast at spaceq.ca. I read and answer all your comments in a timely fashion. You can also find SpaceQ on Twitter at Canada in Space, and we post all our articles and podcasts to Facebook. Regardless of which app you use to listen to us, we really appreciate it if you could rate our podcast and write a review. Of course, that's only if you like us. Your rating and review will help us in getting the podcast widely listened to. And hey, if you like what we do, please support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash spaceq. Lastly, if you haven't listened to the latest episode of our new podcast, Terranauts, what are you waiting for? Host Ian Christie is a natural interviewer who knows how to tease good stories from those who work every day in space but don't go to space. Terranauts is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and your favorite app. Listen to it now. Thank you, and we'll see you next week.